So we're finishing Second Peter tonight, an awesome book in which Peter gives us that reminder, that faithful servant reminder. Um, looked at a lot of great things tonight. We're going to be reminded that it's all going to burn. And we'll see that in chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. So let's pray. Father, thanks so much once again, Lord, for uh, your word and the chance to get into it, Lord. We want to learn it. Lord, we want to study it, Lord, but we also want to apply it. We know that you have something to say to us personally, uh, whether it be from the text, Lord, or whether it just be as we, you know, think about your word, Lord, and then spend time with you in prayer. And so, Lord, we're expecting you to speak, and so we pray that our hearts would be open, ready to receive in Jesus' name, amen. So if you had to write down a list of biblical truths that you should learn so you can grow in your Christian walk, would biblical prophecy be high on that list? You know, oftentimes we think, okay, grace. Well, why grace changed everything? I mean, obviously, growing in grace is important. Peter ends his epistle by saying, hey, grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But prophecy should be high on that list because the New Testament is clear. And understanding what God is gonna do in the future will affect your walk here and now. Here's a couple of examples Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. The Lord there in Matthew 24 talked about the tribulation and, and um, the future really that Israel is going to expect. And then in the end of chapter 24, he began to apply it. And he began to you know, give applications for it in chapter 25. He said that they were to be watching, waiting, ready. They were to be multiplying their talents. They were to keep their lamps burning. They were to reach out with compassion to those in need. And so it wasn't just something that he taught to kind of make them excited. It was something that they were to learn and then apply. It was something that was going to affect them right then and there. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, spoke a lot about biblical prophecy and also the response of the believer. In Romans 13, 11 through 14, he spoke about the nearness of our salvation. He says, hey, guys, our salvation is a lot nearer than when he first believed. He was the guy who believed in the pre-tribulation rapture. He believed that the rapture could happen any moment. He says, hey, We've believed, you know, maybe 40 years ago, and it's, it's even closer now. So what should we do? We should cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's no time for, for resting. It's time for working. It's time for living for the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul spoke about the, the rapture of the church and the fact that the Lord is going to come back at any moment and resurrect the dead, those who have already died and went home to be with Christ, and then he's going to rapture living believers. And then he closed that by saying, comfort one another with these words. And so this would be something, a truth that would comfort them there and now, the hope that Jesus is gonna come back for us. Paul goes on in chapter five of 1 Thessalonians and speaks about the great tribulation. And then he clears up some misunderstanding about uh, you know, the teaching that believers will go through the tribulation. He says, no, the tribulation is gonna come upon those who are in darkness. It's gonna come upon them suddenly. But then he goes on and says, but you, it's not gonna come on you because you're of the day. And since you're of the day, you're not to walk like those in the darkness. You're to be sober. You're to put on the breastplate of faith. You're to walk in love and have the helmet of hope of our salvation. And so he talked about prophecy, but then he says, hey, there's a real application to this, something that should affect you right here and now. The apostle John in 1 John 3, 4 spoke about Christ's second coming and the hope that one day we're gonna be glorified with him. He says, 
Christ is going to come back and, you know, we're going to be glorified just like him. Then he goes on to say, and whoever has his hope purifies himself just as he is pure. So this hope is a purifying hope. It, it changes us. We can go on, but I want to give you one more example. It's given here at the end of this epistle by the Apostle Peter. Peter gives us two final reminders. Number one, the world and everything in it is temporary. It's all going to burn. And second, we're given the encouragement to live for eternity. So first in verse 10, we're reminded that this world and everything in it is temporary. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So the day of the Lord is, is describing a period of time in the future that begins sometime after the rapture of the church. This period will come like a thief in the night, or in other words, people won't expect it. It'll come upon them suddenly. It begins with God's judgment on this earth, known as the Great Tribulation. And during this time, we know that much of the earth will be destroyed by fire. After the seven-year tribulation, Christ will come back with his church and establish his thousand-year kingdom on this earth. After that thousand-year kingdom, and there's a brief rebellion by some who are in their physical body, and they'll be, that'll be stamped out. They'll be cast into the lake of fire. And then there'll be the great white throne judgment in which all unbelievers from all time are resurrected. They stand in front of the great white throne, uh, Revelation 20 says, and then they are cast alive into the lake of fire. And then the completion of the day of the Lord is when this present heavens and earth pass away with a great noise. So most scholars feel that it's referring to this, this whole period of time. Peter talked specifically about the end of it or the completion of that day of the Lord in which this earth is melted with fervent heat. Now, some translate this word great noise as a roar. I can't help but think about Aslan, you know? Uh, and, and especially the BBC version. Remember that? I feel a roar, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> Big stuffed animal. But God with a roar and with fervent heat melts this universe and all things that are in it. You see, man today boasts in their wickedness, right? They're prideful about it. They idolize people. They sell their souls to get fame, especially the fame of this world, to please man. Man praised the great sights of this world, its buildings, its amazing technology. They reject God and laugh at the thought of Christianity, thinking, really, in light of today's society, all that we know about science and you know, all the things, our great technology, I mean, you can... Talk to your watch now if you want to pay millions of dollars for an Apple watch. I mean, you know, we, we have some amazing technology today, and they idolize it, and they think Christianity, it's a thing of the past, you know, religion's a thing of the past. Well, God in the end will reign. All non-believers, sadly, it's sad, they will be cast into the lake of fire. And then with a roar, this universe and everything that is in it, in which man now puts their trust, will all be burned up. It'll all be left for what it is, nothing. It'll just be, it'll just be nothing. Now in verses eight, or excuse me, 11 through 18, we see that in light of this fact, in the fact that our world is temporary, we're to live for eternity. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Therefore, or in light of this fact, the fact that this earth is gonna be burned up, Peter gives us a rhetorical question. Then after he asks this question, he immediately answers it for us. He says, I'll tell you what, how you're supposed to live. 
he says that we're to be holy in our conduct. Holy means to be set apart. We're to be in this world, but we're not to be of this world. And our conduct is referring to our behavior, how we, how we act, how we live. You see, this world that we live in, the world is referring to unbelievers. That's, you know, when you say world, you think, what, what are you talking about? It's, it's referring to unbelievers, it's the, the system of this world of, of, of unbelievers. They live focused on the here and now, on this life, on this world, on their own pleasures. There's another influence going on behind them, just, you know, besides the fact that they want to live for their pleasures, there's Satan. First John tells us that they're held under the sway of the wicked one. They're ensnared to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That it dominates their thinking. Even though they might not know it dominates their thinking, it still does. And even as a believer, after being born again, you still notice that you still have a flesh. And so, you know, unless you check those things, they, they tend to creep up and start trying to dominate your thinking. But these are the things that dominate the world. And you can see them on you know, TV. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that all, you know, all TV's evil, you know, but I mean, a lot of it's there. It's, it's, it's evident before us. It's what man longs for. Now, the conduct of the believer, on the other hand, is to be different. We're not to be living life after the flesh, the old things. We're not to be living for sin or the things of this world. Rather, our behavior is to be different. And our behavior should be different because we have been set free from sin. We have been set free from the flesh and we're no longer under the control of Satan and the lusts of this world. We now have the spirit of God and we have the ability through the spirit of God to know the word of God and also to walk in the word and the will of God. So our life should be different. In a life that's not different, you know, we have to question, okay, well, are they truly freed from you know, sin? Have they been born again? A believer is also to have different focus. We're in contrast to the world. Our hope is not of this world, but it's of heaven. The Bible describes us as pilgrims passing through this world, looking forward to the city whose maker and builder is God. We're to understand that the things of the earth are temporary and that our true home is in heaven. I like what David Guzik says. He says, a man is foolish to invest everything in the things he cannot keep when he can invest in things that he cannot lose, things that are eternal. And so, you know, that's really what the world does. They invest in things that they can't keep. In reality, you know, they want to keep the things of this world because that's all they have, but in the, it's going to be a sad end when it's all burned away because, you know, they, they won't keep it. Can't take it with you. But when you invest in eternal things, those are going to be things that are eternal. Those are, you know, the things that are going to last forever. We're going to have those things, those jewels, those crowns in heaven, those, those you know, the glories of, of sharing the gospel and seeing people in heaven that we were able to share with. Now, besides walking in holiness, we're also to be godly. To be godly simply means to be like God. And Paul tells us that we're to be like that in Ephesians 5.1. He says we're to be imitators of God as dear children. We're to be like our father. We're to act like our dad. Now, God is holy. Yes, he is set apart from the world. But the fact that he's holy does not hinder his compassion and his love for sinners. I like that. You see, God's holy, right? And he's set apart from this world. I mean, he cannot be tainted from sin whatsoever. But yet God is actively involved with the sinner, seeking to love them and to draw them to repentance through his love and his grace. The greatest example of this is Jesus. I mean, Jesus was holy. He was totally set apart. But yet Jesus was always actively involved ministering to sinners. He was always loving on sinners. And so, 
you know, it's, it's a total contrast of oftentimes what, what we think of holiness. You know, we think of, you know, if I'm going to be holy, well, then I'm not going to talk to the sinner, you know, kind of thing. I'm going to have my own little camp, and I'm not going to talk to the sinner. But it's in total contrast. Yes, our behavior should be holy, our life should be holy and different, but that doesn't mean that we're to be isolated from the world. Rather than being isolated from the world, we're to be infiltrating the world to affect it for the, for the glory of the Lord. Christ's holiness, you know, didn't hinder the fact that he loved the lost. And the same should be true for us. We're to affect it with the gospel. Peter talked about that now in verse 12. He says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to this promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so believers are to be looking for and hastening the day of God. The day of God is not the same as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has to do with judgment and destruction of this universe by fervent heat. But the day of God, most scholars feel, refers to the commencement of eternity in which God recreates a new heaven and a new earth out of the old. Dr. Henry Morris gives a possible scientific explanation of how this might be. Here's what he says. He says, after terrestrial matter has been converted either into vapor state or more probably into pure energy, God will once again exercise his mighty powers of creation and integration, and the new heavens and the new earth will appear out of the ashes, so to speak, of the old. And so there's a connection be, between the two, even though it's going to be recreated. But one day, this, this earth will be dissolved, and God will, cre- will recreate a new heaven and new earth. Now, the new heaven and new earth will no doubt be amazing and beautiful. I mean, there's some beautiful places in this world. I mean, you know, you see these pictures of, of these tropical islands. Remember, they're humid. You know, I mean, oftentimes, you know, you, you know these amazing pictures, it's very humid. And, and, you know, and, but it's beautiful, right? Uh, but, you know, all, all these different places, they're amazing. I mean, Diamond Head Mountain and, and all these places, it's not going to be anything compared to the new heavens and new earth. But I think it's interesting that Peter doesn't even really give us any explanation of this new heaven and earth. He doesn't describe the spots or what it's going to look like, right? Really, all he talks about here is the true important thing, the fact that righteousness is going to dwell on this earth. Righteousness is going to dwell on that earth. It's pretty amazing. I mean, it's going to be beautiful, yes, but the amazing thing is righteousness is finally going to dwell on the earth, Righteousness does not dwell on earth today. There are righteous believers, meaning that we've been declared righteous by God, and we are being changed and transformed, right, through the Spirit of God to be more righteous. But righteousness does not have its final home here right now on earth. The Holy Spirit today is restraining lawlessness. He's at work actively restraining lawlessness. And, and you know, it's at work today. One day when the restrainer is removed, when the church is raptured, lawlessness will abound on this earth. But the Lord will come back after the tribulation, after the seven years, and establish his kingdom on this earth. Things will get better. It's an upward progression from there. You see, the Lord will establish his righteous kingdom on earth. He'll rule the earth with a rod of iron and enforce righteousness, especially to those who are in their physical bodies. Us and our glorified bodies, we have no problem. We're going to be glorified. We're going to have, you know, um, no, abil- you know, no ability to sin. We're not going to 
you know, we're gonna be totally glorified. But there will be people in their physical bodies and they still will sin, but the Lord will enforce righteousness on this earth. But after the thousand years and then after the white throne, when the Lord destroys this um, present heaven and earth, the Lord will, will recreate a new heaven and earth in which righteousness will finally dwell. There will be no sin. It'll be amazing. John describes this place in Revelation 21, one through four. He says, now I saw the new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no more sea. Then I, John, saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall, be, there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And so with the passing away comes something new, something beautiful. The fact that there will be no more suffering will finally be in a glorified state. There will be no more sin, but righteousness will bound and dwell on this earth. Now since the promises of God are yes and amen, and God can't lie or make a mistake, this is really a glimpse of our future home. You know, and you know, this is something that, this is a reality. It's like as if we were to see our own future. It's what Peter's describing here. Now, before we move on, we can't miss the two encouragements that Peter gives us in light of this fact. First, he says that we're to be looking for these things. So this, once again, has to do with our focus. What are we focusing on? Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 said that the believers would be watching and waiting for his coming. We're not to be slack. We're not to be like that unfaithful servant in the parable of the unfaithful servant who says, hey, you know what, my master's delaying this coming. I think, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start beating my servants, you know, and, and then start being unfaithful, and then the master comes back, and it's not a good, you know, not a good thing. And even so for us, we're to make sure that we keep our priorities in check. Yes, you know, it, it, it might seem like the Lord is delaying, but he's not delaying. He has a purpose and a plan. And we're not to take, you know, the Lord's seeming delay as a time to slack off, but rather we're to keep our focus on the Lord and on his coming to be faithful and about his business. Second, we're to hasten the coming day of God. Now, scholars are divided concerning this phrase. Those who are, there are those who say that the word hasten means only to live in earnest expectation. So it's really just another way of saying you're, you're to be looking or you're to be really looking, looking forward to it. Others see this phrase, not only that believers are to be looking but believers have a way to speed it up. And the authors of the Bible um, Knowledge Commentary from Dallas Seminary, they, they hold this view. They say that the phrase is actually be translated, speed it up. It's interesting. Now, I actually prefer the latter. And, and, and I think that you can make an interesting case from a couple scriptures. Here's some scriptures. I'll just share them with you real fast. Paul in um, Romans chapter 11 Verses 25 and 26 says this concerning Gentile salvation. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved, as is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. And so God's prophetic timetable for Israel is based on the fullness of the Gentiles. And God, during this age of grace, is calling all people through the gospel. And at some point, that last person whom God foreknows will be saved 
and then God will move forward with his plan. The times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Now, Peter is speaking to Jews in Acts chapter three, verses 19 through 21. Listen to what Peter says. He says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restorations of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And so Peter, in preaching to the Jews, called them to repent. And the purpose of calling them to repentance was that so that God can send Jesus Christ and bring in these times of refreshing. And times of refreshing is referring to the millennial reign of Christ on this earth. It's an Old Testament term. And so Peter says, hey guys, you guys need to repent because if you do, times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. So this verse, I think these verses are motivators for us to get the gospel out to the whole world, both Jew and Gentile. And that's what God is doing today in the church age. The gospel is to go to both Jew and Gentile. So we can wrestle with that. Uh, from there, how, how God's gonna do it, how, how that work, you know, we don't know, but we're encouraged to get the gospel out. We're to be faithful in prayer, in preaching, and in purity. And these are the things that hasten the day of the Lord. Through prayer, as we see in Daniel 9, through preaching, as we preach the gospel to all mankind, and then through purity. That's what Peter began these verses by saying, we're to hasten the day of the Lord, and really it's connected to walking in holiness and living in godliness. Our life is to back up our preaching. We're not only to speak the things of God, but we're to back them up and live them out. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. So the believer is to stay focused on God's future promises of eternity and not get sidetracked in the thinking like the false teachers. They began thinking, well, because the Lord is in delaying, right, the Lord isn't coming after all. But we're not to be sidetracked like that. Because Christ has not come back yet, it's no excuse for unfaithful living. And, it, and once again, it, it, that points to the parable of the unfaithful servant. We're not to be like these false teachers who Peter described in chapter two were like spots and blemishes in their feasts. And so Peter says, hey guys, you guys are to live without spot and blemish. And he says, well, yeah, by the way, didn't I say in chapter two that these false teachers who rejected the second coming of Christ and are now living for themselves in this world are actually spots and blemishes. So once again, we're to be in contrast to them. We're to live in peace. We're to not stir up strife. We're to live in purity. And we're to keep our focus on eternal things and not the things of this world. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, Speaking in, the, uh, speaking in them of things which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And so Peter, once again, he addresses this seeming delay of the Lord. He says, the Lord's delay to come back and fulfill his prophetic plan is not based upon slackness. It's not based upon the fact that the Lord is being lazy or that he doesn't want to come back but it's based upon the fact that God is long-suffering with man. God is not one that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is patient. He's continuing to strive with men's hearts. And the way he's doing this is by drawing men through his grace, but also 
convicting man through his common grace, which is his benevolence to all mankind in general. Paul spoke of this common grace. Peter says that Paul wrote about this in all his epistles. And one place that he could have wrote about this is in Romans 2.4. Paul says, Or do you despise the riches, the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And so Paul speaks of God's common grace. The fact that because God you know, is, has delayed his judgment, it's not a time to be slack, but it's really his grace and desiring that all men would be saved. And the fact that God is continuing to give rain you know, and, and, and to you know, can continue not to allow us to be destroyed is all based upon his grace. It's all a way in which men would be convicted and turn from their sin and come to know God. It's the goodness of God that leads mankind to repentance. And based upon this fact, God is patient and God is willing to wait and to woo men's hearts to draw them to himself by his love and grace. Now notice what Peter, or, uh, Peter says here about Paul and about his writings. He refers to Paul's writings as scripture. He said these false teachers take the writings of Paul and these teachings of Paul about grace and this dispensation of grace and they twist it to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. And so Peter believed that Paul's writings were scripture. He believed that they were equal authority as the Old Testament, showing that as soon as these books were written by these apostles, they were automatically circulated separately to all these different churches and believed that they were the authoritative word of God. And Peter believed these things. Also, Peter says, hey, some of these things are hard to understand. Now, he's not talking about the way Paul wrote. He's talking about the truths which Paul spoke. You know, Paul talked about some deep truths, specifically about this age of grace and, you know, this age of grace in which we live, in which God is both calling out Jew and Gentile into one church. And Peter kind of had a problem with that at one point in the book of Galatians. And he was actually rebuked by Paul. And Paul spoke to him about the law and about grace and about, you know, the relationship between Jew and Gentile and, and how Jews are no longer obligated to keep the law, things like that. And Peter received that rebuke. We know that here because he calls Paul his beloved brother. He didn't say, yeah, that one guy over there is preaching grace. I got my own thing over here kind of thing. You know, no, they, they were of one accord. Peter received his rebuke. He received his, his correction, and he believed that it was from the Lord. And he continued to, um, you know, to uh, trust in the word. Now, Peter gives us a neat example of a person who submitted to the authority of the scriptures. So Peter was able to receive this correction, and then he was able to then give it out. And, and that's really a good example for us today in these last days. We, you know, we need to make sure that we keep the word of God as our authority. And sometimes it might come to correct us, and we need to receive that correction. And then we need to continue to follow it and, and to give it out to others. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. And so once again, Peter goes back to his apologetics and says, hey, guys, remember this. We're talking about living for the Lord right now, but it's important to remember that there are false teachers, and you need to guard the truths which you have learned from the prophets and the apostles, specifically these things that he was teaching about the end times. Satan will seek to use these false teachers as he has in the past in order to creep in and hinder believers from their steadfastness, hinder believers from being grounded. And Paul spoke about that in 
Ephesians chapter four, he says, don't be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but you need to be grounded in the solid teaching of the scriptures taught by the pastors and teachers that you can grow in, in the full stature of the fullness of God. And so Peter says, be grounded in the word, stay grounded on the authority of God's word, and as you do, you won't be led away with the error of the wicked as these false teachers were. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, or or, excuse me, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. The famous last words of Peter. Sometime after this epistle, church history tells us that Peter would be killed for his faith. They would come to him and they were, you know, they came to crucify him, but Peter said that he was not worthy to be crucified like his Lord, so they crucified him upside down. And Peter died for his faith shortly after he wrote these words. Famous last words. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever, amen. It's really the testimony of Peter's life, and it should be the testimony of our life. The Lord wants us to grow in his grace, meaning righteous characteristics. We're to live out the truths of the scriptures. But we're also to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, meaning not just head knowledge, but personal knowledge, intimacy, We're to grow in experiential knowledge of Jesus as we spend time with him and and walk with him. In the end, our life needs to be solely focused on the glory of Jesus. Notice Jesus is God because to God alone is the glory. And Peter here says, to Jesus be the glory, both now and forever, amen. So if Jesus wasn't God, he wouldn't be able to say that biblically. Jesus is God. And because of that, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in closing, we have a choice to make. The world in which we live, the world in which you know, we walk daily is gonna burn. So we have a choice to make. How do we live in this world? How do we walk in this world? And sometimes it's, you know, it's a hard decision. Do we have savings? Do we not have savings? That kind of thing. Well, we need to be careful not to go to one extreme or the other. The one extreme is to say, let's just be like those people and you know, Thessalonians who just sell everything they have, walk around in white robes and just live off people. You having stovetop at your house? I'm coming over tonight. You know, Paul says, hey, if a person doesn't work, they don't eat. And so apparently you have to work. I mean, you know, you have to have money somehow in order to live. You know, but on the other hand, we're not to be so wrapped up in the things of this world that we forget about, you know, the, you know, the, the things of God and the fact that this earth is passing away. I think the only true way to do it is just by getting into the word and being led by the spirit of God. That was the plan of the early church in the book of Acts. They asked the Lord, Lord, are you now gonna establish the kingdom? Israel, and the Lord says, no, I'm gonna fill you with my spirit and I'm gonna send you out into all the world. And they figured out how to do it. They were just daily in the apostles' doctrine and breaking bread and fellowship and the Lord led them. And so rather than going to one stream or the other, let's make the choice to follow the example of Peter and the other believers of the early church. Let's live for the glory of the Lord and grow in his grace and his knowledge. Amen? Father, thanks for your word.